In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, thank you for joining us once again to these, inshallah, important and useful discussions, lectures on the important central principle, topic, and theme of the afterlife, uh, which is a very broad and deep topic, and we're trying to cover as much as we can as quickly as we can. We're providing an overview. So without uh, further ado, the uh, given the interest in the topic or specifically in this station in our journey towards the afterlife, we decided that we would dedicate a lecture or discussion to this station on the way that we refer to as Al-Barzakh, Alam Al-Barzakh. So without spending too much time on the recap this time, I think it's uh, what we've covered until now, inshallah, it's clear and we don't want to spend too much time on this. We began a subtopic in our series to start understanding the afterlife. And the way we're using the afterlife now is simply by saying everything that happens from the moment of death onwards. For practical reasons, that's when the afterlife begins. But as we said, this world will come to an end and a new world will replace it. And, you know, technically speaking, that is alam al-akhirah. So when we're saying the afterlife for practical reasons for a human being, we're stuck with whatever we put into this world while we lived in this life. So this constitutes our entire you know, capital and what uh, determines our fate for the rest of our existence. So the moment you're out of options and you no longer have the possibility to do anything to change your fate, you're done at that point on, for practical reasons, that's when your afterlife, practically speaking, that's when your afterlife begins. And so that's why we're using the terminology in this way. And in any case, we do want to understand. So as we reach the moments of death, generally speaking, so what happens? We said that this is where you really start seeing the limitations of human understanding. So we can no longer keep relying on human reason to discover the details related to death and after death. This is not a world that is accessible to our human reason or our human senses and faculties. And so we have to rely a lot more on the scriptures and we have to put them together in a way that's coherent, that makes sense and inshallah that is practical for, for us. So we went in this way, we went through what we can conclude based on reason about the afterlife. And, you know, we said those big five traits about the afterlife, that it will be everlasting, that it has to accommodate for two types of groups of people, types of people for good and bad, and that it has to be ample enough, extensive enough that it allows for full justice to actually be established. And most importantly, we said, is that this is going to be a world of repercussions, a world of 
outcomes, where the outcomes become clear and manifest, as opposed to a world where you can act, which is this world. And this is the biggest difference, as we said. And the one I, I did not mention now, which is it has to be a world where the perfections exist in a perfect state. And inshallah, we're going to come back to all of this in more detail later. Okay, we're just putting the, the big uh, frame in place right now. And then we started to go through the sequence of events, the, the big stations, the milestones on the way as we move towards this afterlife. And so we began with death. And we explained a few things that inshallah are, are useful and, and not just uh, theoretical for us. We re-emphasized the idea that everyone dies. This is something that I think we all know theoretically, but have we really and fully grasped our own death, that it will happen, that it is inevitable, that it is necessary, and what does this mean, practically speaking, for our lives? That's one. Two, we talked about death not being a specific moment in time, but being an actual process, and it may be a lot longer than what we're seeing in appearance externally for the person dying. Uh, and there are moments leading to this death, and then there's an extraction of the soul. And we said this is when we really start seeing the difference between how people live their lives, the actions, the intentions, the thoughts that you had, how good you truly were. All of this is going to start being reflected in the manner in which you're going to be dealt with when you die. For some people, it's going to be extremely easy. And for some people, it's going to be extremely hard. Uh, the Imams, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, we have a narration, for instance, if I remember, I think it's Imam al-Hadi, uh, he was told that one of his, his companions, one of his followers was dying, uh, and he was in a very, very bad state. So he was anxious, he had fear, he was nervous. So Imam al-Hadi, went to visit him. And he spoke to him uh, he, he, in those dying moments to that man. He told him, you know, if you were wearing clothes that were extremely dirty, they were filled with, you know, little insects or uh, things that were really, really bother, bothersome for you, filthy uh, and very difficult to wear. And you were told that you can now, you know, bathe yourself and change your clothes into very uh, clean and comfortable clothes. Would you not want to do that? Or would you choose to keep wearing your old uh, and filthy clothes? And this, the man said, no, of course I would change my clothes. He told him it's not going to be any different. So this was one instance for this man. And I would say he is doubly lucky for, first of all, for being that good of a person that this is how death is going to be for them. And secondly, for getting that guarantee from the imam of their time live that the imam reassures him and tells him right away, for you, death is going to be in that way. And as we explained, death, we said, is going to be very different for each and every one of us. It's going to be a very personal experience, depending on what we put in and how we lived and who we were uh, in this life. So anyways, these were the some of the main points that we wanted to highlight when we talked about the topic in general. And we also said that uh, there is a whole discussion about who actually repossesses the souls. We explained that ultimately it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He has granted this power to some of the angels, one angel in particular, and some of the angels who basically work for him. Um, 
And then we talked about the topic of repentance at the moment of death, saying that, you know, it is always good and we always want to be able to think about repenting. And it is never too late until it is actually too late, which is you have reached death and you know for sure that you are dying. So any moment before that, your repentance is good. But in generally speaking, you have to be in a state where you don't know if you're dying or not. But if you hit that milestone and you start moving towards death and you know that that's it, this is inevitable, I am dying now, it starts to become very difficult based on what we understand from the verses of the Holy Quran to say that at this point in time, your repentance is going to be accepted as it would be from someone who is repenting fully and throughout their lives. And then we talked about how people are going to wish to return. And inshallah, we're going to keep coming back to this. As we said, it happens multiple times. There is this regret that you want to return to this life because you realize that now you are no longer with any ability, with any power to be able to actually do anything anymore. This is when it hits you that you are now 100% entirely at the mercy of what you have to left in this world, what you have done while you lived in this world. And so right away, as soon as you realize that, the Quran says, people start wishing that they could and asking for being brought back to this life. And then this request is going to be repeated at, you know, milestones. Every time you see the next milestone and you realize the difficulties awaiting and how you are stuck with only that which you provided for yourself, and it was not much or it was not enough and so on and so forth. There's going to be requests and we're going to go through the verses of these. There will be requests where people are going to be praying and wishing that they could be returned to this life to do more, to be given other chances. But the answer will always be no. And we gave more than one reason for that. And then we explained a few terms uh, and we gave a few reminders. So inshallah, all of that is clear. And now we want to go basically to the next phase, which we said is what we refer to as Adam al-Barzakh. So what do we mean by that? What happens in there? And once again, you know, each one of these, we could spend multiple lectures on them, especially if we start going into the narrations, that entire moment of death, the before, during, and after, there's a very large number of narrations, each providing more nuances, more descriptions, more details. The same thing can be said about Adam al-Barzakh, we could literally spend 10 lectures easily on this topic. We're going very fast. So just an overview. But if there are any parts of it, any dimensions where you want to know more, you have questions, please go ahead and ask them. But generally speaking, we're, we're going very high level, uh, quick overview here. First things to keep in mind, this is just a reminder that as we have been saying about this topic in general, the topic of the afterlife, the topic of death and everything that happens after death, we said that this is all uh, from the world of the unseen, the world of the hidden, alam al-ghayb. And in a lot of cases, first of all, we can never know. We can never know what this fully means until we experience it ourselves. We can approximate. We can use the analogies. We can understand to a large extent and enough to act on. And that's the purpose here. The details of these, yes, in certain cases, there's going to be analogies, there's going to be figurative language, there's going to be, all of this is to approximate what happens. Otherwise, it's impossible to describe all of this in kind of scientific, accurate detail until and unless we go through it. Through it. 
The second point related to this is that, and this is perhaps more of a personal observation for myself here, um, but from what I have seen, this is one of the topics where there might be a lot more nonsense than usual. This whole topic of alam al barzakh and everything related to it. So just as a quick remark for, for all of us that, you know, you want to be a little bit more cautious here, make sure you're getting your information from where you're supposed to. The moment you go into anything from the world of the unseen, the hidden, the occult, the mysterious, then there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, misinformation or disinformation out there. So you have to sift through it. So make sure that you have reliable authorities that you can rely on. Uh, that are trustworthy, you know you're getting information from the right place, you're saving yourself a lot of time with that instead of getting in a lot of information that you have to kind of filter through afterwards and and uh, see whether the things that you know is actual, you know, compatible with Islamic worldview and Islamic uh, theology or not. Okay, so this is a very, very quick uh, remark on that. Alam al-Barzakh begins um, technically, if we want to be a bit more technical here. Alam al-Barzakh begins once the soul detaches or departs or leaves the body. Now, even the language I'm using now is, is an approximate language. It's not accurate. The way we talk quickly when we, we talk about the soul, uh, we talk as though the soul is inside the body. And if you go through the, the narrations, especially the narrations, the reports from Ahlul Bayt they don't say the soul is in the body. It's in and around the body. In fact, we have narrations that talk about the soul. They say um, the soul is like an iklil. An iklil is a very, um, a very soft fabric. Sometimes you can put it over the cradle of a baby to protect it from mosquitoes or around a bed. Uh, that, that kind of fabric, it looks like a very soft net uh, or, you know, you, uh, a woman may wear it on her wedding, for instance, to cover that kind of, of, of fabric. Okay. So they say it covers in this way. So it's loosely around and in and around the body, but not, you know, technically speaking that it is inside and it's out. It's outside, around and inside the body. Okay. That's one. So once this disconnect happens between the soul and the body, so that the body can no longer control the soul, uh, uh, the, the soul can no longer control the body at all, that detachment, that disconnect has happened entirely, that's when we can really say you have entered alam al-barzakh. But once again, this is one of the terms that can be used to be in a more loose way to describe the death, the moments of death, what happens at death. And we're gonna go through some of the more minute stations that are gonna happen there as we enter Alam al-Barzakh. Okay, but this is just to, to position things. When we talk, usually we say that in Alam al-Barzakh, and again, this is when, when you hear summaries and overviews, you go very quickly over these. But if you go in you the go details and you read each one of the uh, you know, each one of the narrations and you put them all together in a coherent way, that the image becomes a lot clearer. We usually say that when you reach Alam al-Barzakh, there is absolutely no more connection between the soul and the body. Once again, this is not entirely accurate. 
the, the Imams are very clear that there will always be a sort of link between the soul and the body, even if the body completely disintegrates. We have that in certain narrations where the Imams are specifically asked, what about if the body decomposes? And the Imam says, it will remain there in the particles left in the soil. And in other narrations, the Imams seem to say there is an attachment between the soul and where the body was laid to rest. So there's a link between, let's call it the geographic location or the actual spatial location where the body was put. There's a link between the soul and that body. So there is an importance on where the body is going to be buried, just to keep in mind and to, you know, we'll come back to a little bit of that. But to say that there's absolutely no link, that's not entirely accurate. There is a little bit of link. In fact, as we're going to see, for instance, if you go and you visit someone who is deceased, you're going to visit where their body is. And we are told that the person who is deceased is going to be aware that you are visiting them. But their level of awareness depends on their state. So they're allowed to see and feel and hear depending on how good they were. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows this to happen. But not for everyone and not to the same extent. Inshallah, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But if this is the case, then it means that there is a little bit of a link. But the soul is not inside the ground, so to speak. Okay, it sees. It seems more from above uh, in, in certain narrations. There's also a movement ascribed to the souls. Now, I'm, I'm telling you the things that are not linear. I'm going to go into more systematic in a second. I'm just uh, kind of complementing, trying to complement the information you most likely already have so that we kind of all agree on what we're talking about. There's a, in certain narrations, it's clear that there's a movement. The souls are moved. And it looks like there is a movement of the souls in Alam al-Barzakh, depending on whether they are good or bad. And we're going to see some verses of the Quran that seem to talk about this very clearly. And sometimes the movement is individual and sometimes the movement is in groups. So you are moved to a certain location at certain times in the day, certain times in the year, certain times in the week and brought back. Okay, so there are locations that are much more spiritual in this sense than others, where the souls are brought to and from them, depending on time of day, time of month, time of week, time of year, and how good they were, how bad they were, and so on and so forth. So once again, just the idea that they're being moved and brought back, it reemphasizes the notion that there is a link between the soul and that location, right? They keep coming back to the same location where the body was buried or laid to rest in its final location. And finally, this entire world of Alam al-Barzakh is a spiritual world. There is an emphasis on it. But it's not a world without a body. The Imams, peace upon them, they say that you have a body, but it's an image of a body. Okay, so, so that when they see each other, they recognize each other right away. So you have an image of your body. It may not be this kind of physical material body that we know, but there is something given to you that goes with the soul for you to live in that world. And we're going to see why, because there's more happening than just you being there. There's more happening in Alam al-Barzakh. And this is what matters to us more. Okay, What's happening there depends on what we're doing in this life. So we want to know, so what is happening there? So literally, as we said, al-barzakh, the word barzakh basically means barrier. Okay, so something that prevents 
two things from entering into each other, a wall, a barrier, an obstacle. And this is, of course, a term that was taken from the Holy Quran, and we're going to get to the verse that talks about this. So there is a wall or a barrier that is between this world and the next world, preventing us from seeing and, and, and interacting with Alam al-Barzakh, and the same thing from Alam al-Barzakh to this world. And as we said, sometimes it's referred to as the world of death or the world of the grave or al-Barzakh, uh, which we can translate as the intermediary world or the middle world between this life and the afterlife. So, as we said, it technically begins once the soul has fully detached, but there is more, just a little bit more nuance here. So this is some of the details that we could have covered last time, but since we didn't, let's add it here. First of all, as we said, there is a process of the extraction of the soul. And we said that this is going to be entirely uh, based on how, how you go through this process is going to be entirely based on how you lived your life how good you were. Okay, so we said this could be a very simple, easy, nice, pleasant process, or it could be very harsh and very difficult as a process as the soul is extracted and detached completely from the body so that it can no longer control the body. That's a first phase. The second one is the phase that I'm referring to here as the phase of entering the next world, Alam al-Barzakh. Alam al-Barzakh is a world, as the term uh, implies, a world of its own. To enter it, you need to be prepared. And there seems to be something that happens to prepare you. And it's not a pleasant thing. So I did not refer to the consequence of this. But once again, this is a, a milestone or a station that entirely depends on who you were and how you behaved in this world. And this is what's referred to as the crushing of the ground or the crushing of the grave. It's as though if someone understands the narrations related to this topic, as someone enters into the next world, it's as though they have to go through a process to be prepared existentially, ontologically, as an entity to enter the next world. And part of this and that's why in the narrations, very, very few people can escape from this. Even if you can escape from the first one because of how good you are, you will escape the difficulties of the extraction of the soul. This one, this next milestone or this next station, which is the crushing of the grave, this one seems to include pretty much everyone unless you are the exceptional exception. Okay, so we have, especially if you go through the life of the Holy Prophet, how he would pray for people who are very close to him. And in certain cases, he would stand and cry and people say, why did you do that? And he says, it's because I'm asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to not make this person for my sake, not go through the crushing of the grave. Okay, so this is where we see that even if you were a very good person and you did a lot of good, you may still not escape from this. And, you know, there's a lot that we can say here, as we said, this could be an entire lecture or more about Dhaqtat al-Qabr. It looks like it does perform an existential role. Okay, so it's part of the system that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. And are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. The rules that Allah has put in place mean that usually you need a man and a woman to procreate and 
give birth to a child. The Prophet Isa is born without a father. Are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. But the general rule is that to enter that world fully, you have to go through Baghdad al-Qabr. It's as though you're being reformatted. Okay? And this is, again, how you go through that is going to be entirely dependent. Once again, and I gave you the golden rule last time, the hadith from the Holy Prophet that says, as you lived, so shall you die. And as you died, so shall you be raised. The resurrection. So depending on how you lived, you are going to go through Baghdad al-Qabr. So this, once again, is very personal to each of us, but there is certainly a station called Baghdad al-Qabr. So I referred simply to it as entering into the next world. A little bit like to, you know, a very different degree. But one way to understand this is like when you think about the fetus, the embryo that becomes a baby and is about to enter into this world. The process of entering this world is not that pleasant for that baby. It's, it's going from one world, and if you read the verses of the Qur'an and some narrations that talk about this world, it's an, a whole world for that child while they are in the womb. The Qur'an says they are in three darknesses, okay? And then they enter into this world. This process of entering into this world is not that pleasant for that child. It's not an easy process, okay? But it seems to be necessary for the proper constitution of the human being to go through that process. It's as though it's, there's something similar that is required to enter that alam of al-barzakh, okay? What's perhaps more practical for us once that we understand this, and you know, if we had more time, we would go through the dozens upon dozens of narrations related to Baghdad al-Qabr. What's more practical and useful for us, inshallah, is that there are things that you can do to really alleviate Baghdad al-Qabr for yourself. First of all, there are special invocations, ad'iyah, and special prayers that you can perform. They are, you are told that these alleviate, simplify, ease Baghdad al-Qabr. Okay, so that's one entire theme, an area of work that we need to work on. Okay, that's one. Secondly, the location of the burial makes a difference. So for instance, we do have some reports that if you are buried in Wadi Salam, in Najaf, then you are spared the Baghdad al-Qabr out of honor for Imam Ali salam. Whoever is buried in his vicinity and in his place, this is all, it's as though all of these people are his guests, so they do not go through Baghdad al-Qabr. For instance, we have very specific narrations about that. So the location of the burial, you keep in mind, it does make a difference. There are narrations that say that when you are pouring water on the grave of the person who has just deceased, or every time you go visit them, this may alleviate Baghdad al-Qabr. That's another one. One that is very important too, we have narrations that say that if you put some of the turba of Qabr Imam al-Hussein from the grave of Imam al-Hussein with the person who is deceased, they will not go through Baghdad al-Qabr. And finally, where this is one area of work that inshallah, one day we have the, the, the blessing and the opportunity to do some lessons on akhlaq and we'll talk about all of these. There is a specific type of behavior and action that you need to pay special attention to, to avoid the Baghdad al-Qabr. And this is your family manners. 
your manners with your family members, especially as a man with the wife and the children, but in general, your manners with your family members. This is an area, it's as though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that because we spend more time with our families, unfortunately, this is probably the people we should respect the most because we love them the most and we have these blood ties with them and so on and so forth, but we get so used to them and accustomed to them and see them so much and we're into each other's spaces that these are the first people with whom usually we're, the manners are gonna go out the window. And so this is one area where we have specific narrations again and again from the Holy Prophet and from the Imams. You want to alleviate this very difficult moment, station of Dhaqat al-Qabr, pay attention to your manners with your family members. Uh, husband and wife, uh, children with their parents, uh, parents with their children. This is going to mean a lot for whether you go through a difficult or an easy Dhaqat al-Qabr. And this is different from saying someone prays and fasts and gives charity and performs hajj. All of these have a role to play and a function to play. But when you start drilling into the specific repercussions and outcomes and consequences of certain acts, this is where you start seeing some of these narrations. That you see there's a specific function being played by certain acts, by certain manners, by certain things you do. We're supposed to be good and we're supposed to be, you know, patient all the time, good all the time, perseverant all the time. And but there are specific functions to specific manners and behaviors to keep in mind. This is one of them. So that's the whole topic of the entering into the next world. The next, once again, I'm going through these a little bit faster. Um, the next milestone as we're entering into Alam al-Barzakh. So here we are in Alam al-Barzakh, but the, 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 the outcome of Alam al-Barzakh is not clear. The, the purpose of Alam al-Barzakh has not happened yet. Okay, so that's why I'm using these as though it's a preparation to enter Alam al-Barzakh. So this is the questioning of the main beliefs. So in certain narrations, we have that there are angels who come to you and question you about your main beliefs. These are the high level beliefs. But as we explained last time, the process of death is very difficult. It's like a shock to the system. And it's meant to be that way to, to basically at an existential level, see what from your faith remains with you and what goes away. What was there in a solid, firm manner to the extent where it has become a part of you. It's an integral part of you. This is who you are. This belief has become who you are. This is your identity, right? When you pray five times a day, every single day, day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, this is going to be who you are. It's completely different from something you've done once, something you've done a few times, right? So these difficulties in large part, it's to at an existential level to see what stays and what goes, what's really there and what's passing, okay? So there is a questioning of our faith and these are the high level questions. You have to be able to repeat at a existential level who your Lord is and who your messenger is and what's your book, and what's your qibla, right? Who your imams are. This is very, very clearly uh, mentioned, explicitly listed, mentioned in multiple, multiple narrations. 
the details of it, there's a back and forth between the narrations on which ones we take, and there's a bit of contradiction between some of them. But generally speaking, there are angels. They are scary looking, and they are meant to be that way, Munkar and Nakir, and they come and they question you. And depending on the answers you give, and depending on the ability to answer or not, you have just sealed your fate for Alam al-Barzakh. Once you give your answers to these angels of, of death, basically, right after death, the angels that are meant to question you, then you are sealing your fate, you are dictating for yourself how the rest of Alam al-Barzakh is going to look like for you. Okay, and this is when you officially enter your barzakh. So I went through these quickly. As I said, these are the milestones that lead up to alam al-barzakh. Now that all of this happens, now you enter into alam al-barzakh. You are now in al-barzakh. So what happens very quickly, what happens is that we are told, and here again, it's a very personal experience for different groups of people. There are people and you know, I'm not gonna go into numbers, it's difficult to tell. There are people clearly who, they remain in their graves, but there are openings that are created for them in their graves, just like windows or gates or doors or portals, depending on the narrations you look at, through which they can see their place in heaven or hell. It's almost like it's a pretaste of things to come in the afterlife, okay? So they are not in heaven or hell, but they can see heaven and hell and they live in that comfort or they live in that discomfort depending on the type of opening that they got on, on, and where it is looking out to, okay? So that's one type of people. Other types of people are actually brought into a heaven or a hell. And so obviously those, their actions in quality and in intensity and in degree are a lot more. So they actually enter, are made to enter into a heaven or a hell. There are people, we are told in the narrations, that those people, they are ignored. They are completely ignored and they go into a type of sleep. And they are awakened only in the afterlife. This would require a lecture or lectures to fully understand, but it looks like it depends on to what extent knowledge had reached you and you understood what you were supposed to believe in or not. And that's why we have some narrations that say, when people are raised back from the dead on resurrection day, one of the stations is for people to whom the knowledge was not given fully. So they were never really given the full chance to become what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted them to become in this life. The message that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to give them did not reach them fully. Maybe they lived far away. Maybe a prophet was not sent to their area. Maybe the message was too distorted by the time it reached them. Maybe and maybe and maybe. So this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who will manage all of that. But as soon as people are raised back from the dead, there are people who are brought there to be questioned. And depending on that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will decide what to do with them. Okay, and so that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who will decide all of that. And most likely it is all those people who will be ignored, who will be put, they did not do enough good or bad in a justified manner that makes them be allowed to or entitled to a reward or a punishment in Alam al-Barzakh. So they are ignored. 
Okay, so these are the different categories of people and what's happening in Alam al-Barzakh. Why is this all happening? The first reason and the details of this, we're going to park them for later. We're going to come back to what this really means. But for now, very quickly, what's happening in Alam al-Barzakh is just a manifestation of what we put in into this world. We said that at the moment of death, we start seeing things a lot more as they truly are than we were seeing them in this world. So the actions that you performed, the deeds that you performed, the intentions and thoughts that you carried in your life, they start taking their real shape starting from Alam al-Barzah. So the reward and the punishment that you are seeing that you are tasting in some narrations or certain verses of the Quran, the taste, so you're not getting it in full, you're getting a taste of it. Nudiq, it's always Nudiq in the Quran. Uh, when you look at these uh, acts that you performed, you see that they manifest themselves. They become realities. They take their true form in Alam al-Barzakh and they, their true, true form only appears in the afterlife. But in Alam al-Barzakh, you start seeing them a lot more in, as they truly are. So one way to say it is to say you are getting a reward or a punishment for your actions, for your deeds, for your thoughts and intentions. Another way to see it and to say it is basically your actions are starting to come back to you. Whatever you put in while you lived is now coming back to you and you're going to go through it again. But now you're going to go through it as in its true format. That's what's happening in Al-Barzakh. Okay, so that's one. Two, it is only natural, for normal, that you are starting now that you are moving towards the afterlife. Now you're going to start to get a, an idea of where you're headed. And that's why we said you're being shown your place in heaven or your place in hell. Okay, that's two. A second purpose for all of this to happen. The third one, and specifically for in a lot of cases, we have specific narrations for this, for the believers. It's so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to give them one last opportunity to be as pure as possible before reaching the afterlife. So there might be difficulties at the moment of death, at the moment of the dhaghtat al-qabr, the, the crushing of the grave, uh, difficulties in the questioning of the angels, difficulties in alam al-barzakh, all of that depending on how many sins and how many mistakes you're coming with, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using all of that, as the imams say, to purify you as much as possible so that your difficulties are not in the afterlife. They're not in the alam al-akhirah. They are happening before you reach alam al-akhirah because it does not compare. Even as, as difficult as alam al-barzakh can be, alam al-akhirah is a lot more serious, and inshallah, we're going to go through the verses that will explain all of that. Okay, so this becomes your last chance to be as pure and as clean and as good and as perfect as possible before you enter Alam al-Akhirah, okay, the afterlife. A few more thoughts on this. So the first one is, even for someone who is good or someone who is bad, but let's concentrate on the good, inshallah, we're all with them. It may not be always consistent. So once you are in Alam al-Barzakh, there might be ups and downs here. I wrote it. There might be times when you receive a lot more good and times when you receive a lot less good or even some difficulties and hardships. This 
in part is entirely related to what you have put in. If there were times in your life where you did a lot more good than others, it might be reflected in Alam al-Barzakh, for instance. You had a five-year gap, you had a 10-year gap, you did a lot more in certain areas in your life than others. In certain areas you did less, it might all be reflected. There might be times when there is a lot of good and there are times when there might be some hardship. So it's not a guaranteed one thing, one size fits all for your entire duration and Alam al-Barzakh. That's one more detail. The next one is that there is also the possibility that, and again, this brings us back to the notion that there is a link between the soul and this world. It's not an absolute and complete detachment. It's just we don't seem to understand how that link works. Okay, but there is a link. Some of the things that could definitely help is that you can send gifts to the deceased and they will receive them and it will have a huge impact. So it depends on what they did their, in, during their lives. And it depends on who you are as you gift them and the quality of the work that you're doing. But when you gift something, especially the things they really need, for instance, when you remember them in a prayer, when you recite Surah Al-Fatiha or a Quran for them, or you perform a pilgrimage uh, or a Umrah for them and you, and you send it to their soul, they receive those. And these matters make a huge impact for them. And they know who sent it and they know all of those details. Okay, so never neglect that part. And again, this re-emphasizes always that the link is there. It's just we don't see it and we don't understand it. The next one is that there are things those people could have done during their lives that have a huge impact and an ongoing uh, goodness for them as they remain in Alam al-Barzakh. So we have the very famous narration, the tradition that says that once a human being leaves this world, Everything is cut off. All him, he is entirely cut off from all of his actions except three. And so the three things very clearly, and those are this is a, the famous narration, and there are many others. So one of them is that they had a charity or some sort of charitable act that they continued to do and that remains after they leave. Or they have a righteous and good son or daughter who prays for them, who remembers them and who continuously prays for them after they're dead. And they left knowledge for people to benefit from. So in other words, you have left something good in this life. And that's why we have in other narrations, for instance, those who build or participate in the building of mosques. Those who participate in, in some narrations, we have even a narration that says, those who have helped dig rivers, there are areas where there is absolutely no water and people have dug a river to allow the water to reach there. So depending on the type of goodness and service that you have provided to humanity, those acts where people continue to benefit from what you left in the world, even though you can no longer act while you're here, it's as though you invested and that investment keeps bringing you returns. Even though you've left and from this world and you can no longer do anything yourself, You've put in things such as your knowledge, such as your money, such as your children. You've helped guided people. You did things that are uh, useful to humanity, so on and so forth. All of these things are going to be a continuous source of provision, a continuous source of goodness, alleviation of difficulties, or uh, just bliss and, and uh, comfort and happiness for you in Alam al-Barzakh. Okay? And um, 
Is there awareness or not? As we said, there is awareness to a certain extent. So depending on how good you are or how bad you are, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow you to be aware of what's happening in this life, in this world. We have narrations, for instance, that say those who are good, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make them aware of what's happening in the lives of their families, but only those things that are pleasant to them. So let's say it would harm them and they would be unhappy to know. In Alam al-Barzakh, they would be unhappy to know that so-and-so in the family got really sick. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not let them know that. He would only let them know those things that are pleasant to them. We have narration. Whereas the opposite for those who are not good, those who, who did bad, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses that as a type of torment. And that's why we said not everything is just material and physical. The psychological and the spiritual happiness or torment can be a lot more intense and be used in that way in Alam al-Barzakh and the afterlife. In any case, so inshallah, all of this is providing a good general overview. The looking at the Quranic verses related to the topic of Alam al-Barzakh. The first two topics is simply to establish these, these verses, sorry, the first two verses that I'm mentioning, simply to establish very quickly that there is an awareness and there is a life that is ongoing and people are aware and they're interacting. They know who they are. They know what they've done in their life. They know where they're headed and what's happening to them. And so you see them interacting. Okay, in both of these verses or groups of verses, you see that very clearly. In the first one, it says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells people, spend in charity from what we have provided you before death comes to any of you. Whereat he will say, my Lord, why did you not respite me for a short time that I might have given charity and become one of the righteous? Why did you not let me stay just a little bit longer in life? During that time, I would have given more charity. And during that time, I would have become righteous. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do it now. Do it now. You want to do anything good? Don't wait. And then you're going to be asking once it's too late. It doesn't count anymore. It's of no avail. But the fact that this person is asking means that this person is now dead. And they are in Alam al-Barzaq. And this is just to emphasize a lot of the things that we said, a lot of the images that I gave you before. I'm trying to now establish them from the Quran. Okay? So that's one. Another one, so this is Surah Al-Munafiqeen, the other one Surah Al-Mu'minun, and this is the verse from which this whole uh, notion was taken, which is Al-Barzakh. So this is the verse of the Quran that talks about Al-Barzakh, not in the specific sense of being a whole world. It's the barrier, but this is where the word is taken from, from the Quran. The very famous verses, and we talked about them, until death comes to one of them. He says, my Lord, send me back that I may act righteously in what I have left behind so this is where you see the person existentially, intuitively knows and experiences their inability to act anymore once they are in Alam al-Barza. So they're asking to be brought back to do more because they can't do anything anymore, right? In Alam al-Barza. In what I have left behind, by no means. These are mere words that he says and ahead of them is a barzakh, so as a barrier until the day they will be resurrected. Okay? So these are, inshallah, I think this one, these two are clear. The second group, inshallah, also establishes the idea that there is a lot going on, but generally speaking, it's that 
you are getting a foretaste of where you're headed and what's awaiting for you in the afterlife. You're getting a taste of that in the Alam al-Barzakh. The first verse says, and do not suppose those who were slain in the way of Allah to be dead. And so we keep thinking about people being dead, dead. And the Quran is very clear here. You know, don't allow yourself to be tricked, basically. Okay? Rather, they are living and provided for near their Lord. So here we learn something new. The first is that they are living, very important. So that completely changes how we understand life and death. That's one. And this is a whole topic, but just to leave the, the thoughts in your minds. The second one is that you need a provision. You need sustenance. You need rizq when you are in Alam al-Barzakh. And so those people who were slain in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I take care of them. So they're very special. But this establishes that while you are in Alam al-Barzakh, you need rizq. Okay, and so we're going to see that come back again and again in the verses of the Quran. In Surah Maryam, it says, لا يسمعون فيها لغوان. So we might think the Quran here was talking about those who are good, and it says they have died, and then it says لا يسمعون فيها لغوان إلا سلاما ولهم رزقهم فيها بكرة وعشية. They do not hear in it vain talk, but only peace. And we said here, peace is not the word peace, even though they hear the word peace. It's not the word that they're hearing. It's the state that they're being put into, which is kind of a blissful happiness, serenity, and, and peace. You're really at peace. And therein, while they're there, they will have their provision, one, their provision. So this is, again, the idea of rizq. There's a necessity for rizq to receive, to keep receiving as you are in barzakh. So, of course, this is based on your actions in this life. And then, bukratan wa'ashiyya. And here the commentators, generally speaking, they all say, and we, we can establish this from multiple verses of the Quran, I did not add them here, that if you go to the afterlife, the verses of the afterlife, they clearly say that there is no night and day in the afterlife. So if someone wants to say that this is happening in the Jannah, the paradise of the afterlife, it's the Quran telling us what happens to them, the commentators here say no, because they're receiving a sustenance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala morning and evening, bringing us back to the notion that there is a link between Alam al-Barzakh and our world because our world has a morning and an evening. Okay, so there is a little bit of a timeline that is running in parallel between us and Alam al-Barzakh. Okay, so we establish that from this verse. The next one, now we see the other side. So we saw those who are good, now let's see the other side and a terrible punishment. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now is talking about what happened to the people of Fir'aun after they were they drowned. And a terrible punishment besieged Fir'aun's clan, the clan, the fire. So we would say the fire is in the afterlife. And nar. So a nar is supposed to be in the afterlife. Now the Quran here says, alayha, the fire to which they are exposed. So yu'aradun does not necessarily mean that they're made to enter. They might enter or they're just being presented to it. They're being exposed, brought to it. They can maybe see it based on what we said. They see it, not all the time. Morning and evening. So based on this, twice a day, 
they're reminded of where they're going in the afterlife. This is as part of their punishment. So they're not there. So there's something going on here. Obviously, these people are aware. Obviously, they remember everything that happened in this life. And now they're living all of that. But all of that is happening in Alam al-Barzakh. Twice a day, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, those people are being brought to, exposed to, presented to the fire. And then when it is the afterlife, and when the hour sets, the hour of the day of judgment, and when the hour sets, Fir'aun's clan will enter the most severe punishment. That's when they will enter the fire with all the punishment that goes with it. The third group of verses, and I only had one here, so I think it's a good thing so that we don't take too long. The examples, and there are many in the Quran, where you can see stories that seem to be happening, things that are being said or things that are happening that are clearly in Alam al-Barzah. One of them is in Surah Yasin. So this is a whole story. I, I don't think I have a lot of time to, to, to uh, summarize maybe very quickly the story so that you know what's happening here. This is in Surah Yasin, 36 is Surah Yasin. We are told in Surah Yasin, there's an official version and a non-official version. The official version, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala simply says there are three messengers who were sent to a village. So two of them were sent. And then when the people rejected them and considered them liars, a third one was sent. And that third one has a back and forth with the people. And he tells them, I have believed in them. They would not call you except to worship Allah who has created us. Why don't you worship him? Those people in the narrations, or let's stick to the Quran first. The Holy Quran says, so they told them, you guys are bringing us misfortune and you have to stop calling us to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you don't, there's two meanings to these words. We will stone you to death or we will push you out. But most likely stone you to death. And they were stoned to death and they were martyred in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the outcome. This verse is the outcome of that third messenger, what he said. Okay. The more detailed version, this is not in the Quran. This is now when we add the commentary. That the official version says there are three messengers who may have been, so two messengers and then a third, sent by Prophet Isa salam to a part of Turkey. At that time, it used to be Syria. It became Turkey today, Antioch, so Antakya. Prophet Isa salam would have sent him or they were representatives of his to those people. He sent two. They did not believe them. He sent a third one. In some narrations, he's mentioned as Habib, Habib al Najjab. So he came and he preached and he told the people, he tried to incite them and preach to them and advise them. They rejected. They said, no, we will not believe you. He tried to really convince. It is said in some, some narrations that um, as they entered that village or as they entered Al-Qariya, that Surah Yasin referred to, that place where they were sent, apparently a famine struck. And so they said, see, when you guys came, you caused the misfortune. You are the reason why this famine happened. We're not getting you know, any more water, our crops are dying, our animals are dying, it's because of you. And so they, they went back and forth, so they created this superstitious uh, reason to reject that faith. And in the end, they killed them, so they were martyrs in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the conclusion of all of this. So I intentionally added one verse. The verse before he dies, he tells them, I have indeed believed in your Lord, so listen to me. That's the beginning of the story. This is the end. 
So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that this man kept telling them to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I have indeed believed in your Lord, he tells them. So listen to me. And then we don't know what happens. And the next verse says, he was told, enter paradise. So he was killed in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the style of the Quran. It says he was told, enter paradise. He said, alas, if only my people knew how my Lord forgave me and made me of the honored ones. So when is he talking? He fully knows what's happening to his people. He wishes that they knew because if only they knew, even though they caused him death, even if, though they killed him for no reason, he was completely innocent and they killed him for trying to help them. His only desire is that if only they could see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dealt with him as a believer, then they would believe. Okay, and this is why you see, you are who you are. Whatever you built yourself to be in this world, this is how you die. And however you die is going to be how it's going to show here in Alam al-Barzakh and it's going to show in the resurrection. So even in that state, all he's wishing for is that those people believe in him and believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which of course they did not. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we sent one blast and they all died. We did not need to send an army. We did not do, we just sent in one cry, one blast, all of these people suddenly were dead. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, basically he himself sought revenge for those three messengers who were killed. This story might or might not be the same one mentioned in the Bible. So I, I put some, you know, for, for those following. In Acts, if you go back to, uh, the Bible, you can see there might be the same story or not. There's a story of Barnabas and, and Saul. And in any case, there's a story mentioned. It might match the same one in the Holy Quran or not. So in case you're, you're interested. But the point here is that we see a man who is once again talking and praying and interacting and aware. But he's in Alam al-Barzakh. He's not in the afterlife yet. The afterlife, that afterlife does not exist. Okay. He is in some sort of Jannah. And he is not just getting a taste of the jinn. He was told, enter into the jinn. And that's why we said there's different categories of people and you see it very clearly in the Holy Quran. And then finally, and we'll finish with this, from if you go into the narrations, we have multiple, multiple narrations talking very explicitly about Adam al-Barzakh, about people being aware, understanding what's going on. In one of the very well-known uh, reports that we have in the books of history in the biography of the Holy Prophet after the battle of Badr. And in that battle, um, 70 people were killed from, from, the, from Quraysh and they were taken and they were put in a well because Quraysh left without burying their, their dead. They, they just fled. So the Holy Prophet ordered that they, they take all of their bodies of the deceased uh, who had fought against him, and they were put in an old well that was dried up uh, as kind of a mass grave for all of them. And then after which the Holy Prophet stood near that grave, near that big grave or that well, and he spoke to them. And this is part of what he said. There's different reports, but if you put them together, oh, people of the well, and he named many of them. So he mentions, I think, three to six, depending on the narrations that you look at, you were the worst of the tribes to your prophet, he tells them. You considered me a liar and rejected me when the people believed in me. So you call yourself Quraysh and you call yourself my tribe. Okay, so this is what he's telling them. So instead of being the ones who believe in me first 
you know me more, most and you should have been the ones who support me the most. Instead, you were the worst of the tribes to your prophet. You considered me a liar and rejected me when the people believed in me. And you forced me into exile when the others took me in and welcomed me. And you went to war against me and the people supported me. So this is a question. So have you found what your Lord had promised you to be true? As for me, I have found what my Lord had promised me to be true. So he says Allah Taala had promised me a victory and I got it. But he also, I have told you that he had promised you that, you know, this is what's going to happen. And once you die, certain things happen. So now are you seeing those things that I told you would happen once you die? And of course, the Muslims around the Holy Prophet, some of them came to him and he told, they told him, uh, O Messenger of Allah, are you now talking to a group of people who are now dead? Are you talking to the dead now? And he answered them. And this is a very important answer, I think, not only for those people, but I think for us too. The Holy Prophet tells them, you do not hear me better than they do. And so the reason is that those people are hearing loud and clear. It's the truth because they're living it. And they hear the Holy Prophet very clearly because, as we said, the link with this world is still there. But inshallah, we're not of those people who don't hear the Holy Prophet because the message is the same message that we're getting. Okay, inshallah, this doesn't apply to us. But the Holy Prophet is talking to the world of the living and he's telling it, telling those who are alive, you do not hear me. You think you're hearing me better than those who are dead. You do not hear me better than they do. And, you know, if you flip it, they are hearing me as well as you are or better. Okay, that's what the Holy Prophet is saying. We have something very similar that happened uh, after after the battle of uh, the camel, Ma'arakat al-Jamal, Imam Ali alayhi salam. He did this with at least two people, if not more. So after the battle, he did not do like the Holy Prophet where he puts everyone together, but there are at least two people. Uh, Ka'b bin Sur um, was the judge of the city of Basra. And Talhawal, he was one of the people who, who led the battle against Imam Ali alayhi salam. And so after the battle, uh, the Imam was victorious. So he walked amongst the, the ranks of those who are dead. And he would ask those who were around him, he would tell them, sit him up. So the first man, he told them, sit him up. So they sat him, he's dead. He said, sit him up. So he sat him and he asked him the same thing. He told him, I have found what my Lord had promised me to be true. Did you find what your Lord promised you to be true? And then he walked and he said, put him down. And they put him down. And then he walked to another man and he did this with Talha. And then they asked him the same question. And he answered and he said, same words as the Holy Prophet, but he added, just like the people of the well and the Holy Prophet when he spoke to them. So he said, you do not hear me better than they do, just like the people that the Holy Prophet had put in the well. So he went back to the time when, right after the battle of Badr. And then very quickly, if you, I'm not going to go through the narrations here, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but very quickly, the there are multiple narrations here that specifically talk about the states of uh, awareness of those who are dead so that we don't forget that for ourselves, practical purposes, and that we do not forget our dead. Okay, so that we're told very explicitly and very clearly when, when the deceased is first carried. And so this is when they're carried to their grave. 
They're very aware. They know exactly what's happening. They know every person who's carrying them, all of that. They are fully, fully aware of what's going on there. When they are visited, so right after their death, their death and afterwards, whenever they are visited. In some narrations, we have the imams telling us they even hear the footsteps as people are coming closer and going further. And they are there and they know exactly who visited them and what they did while they're visiting them. And we have narrations that say, and, and they get lonely or sad when people leave. And then we have, obviously, and this is, I think, uh, very important for us. Maybe I'll finish with that one. We have narrations that say that the Holy Prophet would actually leave the house every single night to go and talk to the people in the cemetery of Baqi'ah, near where he lived. Okay, so this was a cemetery, you know, the, the city of uh, Al-Madina, Al-Madina Al-Munawwara. So he would go and he would talk to them. He would salute them and he would pray for them. Okay, and a lot, we know a lot of the family members of the Holy Prophet, a lot of the companions of the Holy Prophet are buried there. So this is a habit that the Holy Prophet had done, had made, and we need to keep that in mind. And finally, for us, we talk all the time to the Holy Prophet. So don't ever forget that. It's not because the Holy Prophet is not seen with our eyes that he doesn't hear and he doesn't see. In fact, in our prayers, every single day, we salute him in every single prayer at the end of the prayer. That's the bare minimum. And every other time we may talk to the Holy Prophet or any of the Imams, and inshallah, we keep them in mind. So all this to say, inshallah, as a wrap-up, this was the topic of Al-Barzakh. Uh, the, the idea here was to present kind of a very high-level, general, quick overview uh, of what the Holy Quran says to clearly establish that it does exist, what awaits us when we go there, the, as we say, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and inshallah, that this becomes things that we can translate into action in our lives so that we prepare now that we know. Now that you know, and again, I will keep repeating this, Inshallah, I don't forget after each one of these lessons related to the afterlife. I'm presenting this in a non-preachy way as much as possible. But my question is always, now that you know, so what? Now that you know this, what does this mean? You cannot say that you're the same after you know this. After you know what awaits you for the moments of death. After you know what awaits you in Alam al-Barzakh. After you, you start really clearly seeing the distinction and the difference and the advantage of those who do and those who don't, or the quality of what you put in into this world, you cannot just keep living the same life as someone who doesn't believe and doesn't know any of this. So inshallah, this makes a little bit of a difference in practical terms and the manner in which we make our choices in this world and how we live our lives. If you give me, um, I don't want to give an amount of minutes because I always go beyond it. If you give me a few more minutes, if that's okay with you, in, uh, I believe, in one or two or three days, depending on what day of the Hijri month uh, we are, uh, of this month, we have the birth of Sayyidah Zainab, So maybe very, very quickly, just a couple of minutes about her and her birth and her life. Um, Sayyidah Zainab, is the daughter of Imam Ali, and Fatima al-Zahra. And... You know, it might be surprising to, to hear this, but um, if you go to certain communities in the Sunni world and certain communities of the Sufis, uh, they celebrate the birth of Sayyidah Zainab very seriously and very intensely. 
So she goes way beyond just, you know, a, being a, let's say, a figure of our madhab. Uh, many, many Muslims respect her, understand the role that she played, and they consider her a saint. And if you go to certain locations like Egypt, for instance, or elsewhere, you see that the people go there to make offerings and ask her intercession in this life and the next. So this is someone who goes way beyond, you know, the very maybe smaller scope of our madhab. Um, the birth of Sayyidah Zainab alayhi salam, there are a number of narrations for when she was born. Um, as early as the fifth year of Hijrah, after the migration of the Prophet and the latest reports say that she was born year nine. But these are very weak and would not be considered authentic. She was most likely born either year five or the most popular opinion is year six. Keeping in mind that Imam Hassan was born year three, Imam Hussein was, year bo uh, was born year four of the Hijrah, Imam Hassan in Shah Ramadan, Imam Hussein in Shaban. So uh, she would be about one, one and a half years younger than Imam Hussain based on these, the, the popular version of history, let's say. And, you know, given very quickly, if we don't want to spend too much time on this, her, her life in general, no matter what point of her life you look at, uh, it was a life of, of struggle, it was a life of knowledge, and it was a life of piety. And knowledge, I mean, there, there's just a lot to say, but generally speaking, she became the central figure during her life, uh, just like Fatima al-Zahra had been in her life for the woman of that time. So they, one, first of all, you need a role model. And so she was the role model. And Fatima al-Zahra passed away very young, as we know. And so she slowly became the go-to person in the for the woman, for the girls and the, the women who wanted to understand Islam. And she would teach the Holy Quran. She would teach narrations. She would teach legal matters. And she would uh, be one of the main sources of hadith. Uh, in fact, Al-Khutbah uh, al-Fadakiyah, the sermon, the long sermon of Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam for the events of Fadak, they are reported by Sayyidah Zainab alayhi salam. Ibn Abbas reports it from her. And she would have been about four to five to six years old depending on the, when she would have learned that khutbah and listened to it live and memorized it. Okay, so just to give you an indication of, this is not someone normal that we're talking about, just ordinary woman. This is a saint. And inshallah, we'll, we'll make that very clear in the next few points. The second point has to do with the life of piety that she led. Um, she married uh, Abdullah ibn Jafar. Ja'far is the brother of Imam Ali This is Ja'far al-Tayyar, his son, Abdullah, was considered one of the wealthiest men in the Arabian Peninsula. He, he had all the money of the world, and he was also considered one of the most generous by far. He, he sustained so many people, including all of Bani Hashim and many others, and he was known for that. In fact, people would often criticize him for being too generous, and he would often say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has been good to me, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made a good habit of being good to me and I have tried to made a, make a good habit of being good to people. Uh, and I'm afraid that if I break my habit, then he breaks his habit with me. And so, you know, he, he would say things like that because people would often criticize him for how generous he was and how much he would give all the time. So 
if you look at her life as opposed to that, you would see that the the the, the location, the, the house that she lived in, there was nothing in it. We're told that there was one leather, one piece of leather, and one hasira. You know, those uh, the, the the mat, the very very simple mat made of uh, dried uh, palm leaves, and uh, she would do all of her own chores. Uh, she would wear very simple clothes and so on and so forth. So you could tell very, very much following the role model of Imam Ali alayhi salam, living in that same way, the same way as Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam lived. And once again, this is out of choice. When your husband is the wealthiest or one of the wealthiest men in uh, the Arabian world, there is no real need or reason for you to live that way unless it's a matter of choice because you so don't care about this world and its luxuries and its comforts. In any case, so that's one thing to keep in mind. And uh, so after her marriage, she went to live with Imam, uh, she lived with Imam Ali alayhi salam and, and her brothers, Imam Hassan and Imam Hussein, when they, when they all moved to Kufa when Imam Ali alayhi salam became the Khalifa and they came back after his martyrdom. During the time that she lived in Kufa, she continued to play that role of teaching and we have many reports of that where the women would gather and she would teach them hadith, she would teach them Quran and she would teach them ahkam. So we would refer to it maybe as, as fiqh nowadays. Okay, so that she continued to play that role and again in Medina when she came back, but obviously the most uh, popular and well-known part of her life, chapter of her life is when she uh, joined Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam in the events of Karbala and uh, you know, I'm not going to go into the, the big details related to that, except to say that she it was not even an option for her in her mind to not follow along. It's very clear that there was a sort of divine mission, and she understood her role in that divine mission. And so she went with Imam Hussein, alayhi salam, and she continued to play that role despite the difficulties, and it was an incredibly difficult role, but an incredible, incredibly important one, especially after the events of the 10th of Muharram when the Imam passes away and she becomes the main person carrying the uh, reports of Karbala and carrying and making sure that people are always, that the memory of Karbala is always fresh in their minds to the point where basically right after the events of Karbala, after she was taken prisoner with the rest of the caravan to Kufa, to Sham, then eventually brought back to Medina, she caused a lot of problems because of that to the governor because he wrote to Yazid telling him that he she's causing trouble because people keep gathering and she keeps recreating, uh, reinvigorating the, the feelings of revolt against Bani Umayyah from, uh, and, and uh, out of empathy for Bani Hashim for what we have done in Karbala and so on and so forth. So do you allow me to basically push her out uh, one way or another? And so he told him, yes, give her basically the, the choice to go where she, she wants. And that whole chapter, the last you know, times, the last months of the life of, of Sayyidah Zainab salam, are not entirely clear. There's a back and forth between the historians on what happened. Inshallah, we'll deal with that at another time. Uh, so you know, there are reports that she was buried in Egypt uh, or in, somewhere in, in Syria or even elsewhere. Uh, there are a number of different uh, mausoleums for her around the world. Um, the you know, No matter what you look at, there, there's a lot to talk about. Um, maybe I will end with this one report. 
related to since we are talking about the the birth anniversary of Sayyidah Zainab We're told that when Fatima al-Zahra was pregnant and she gave birth to Sayyidah Zainab um, Imam Ali salam entered, he took his daughter, he kissed her and he asked uh, Fatima al-Zahra whether she had named the daughter. And she told him, I was not going to precede you and to name her before you. So Imam Ali salam, after performing the rituals of the newborn, uh, he said, and I will not precede the Holy Prophet, the Messenger of Allah, in naming her. In some narrations, we're told that the Holy Prophet was actually not in town. He had traveled. So they waited for the Holy Prophet to come back. When the Prophet came back, the news had reached him that his daughter, Fatima al-Zahra, had given birth to a daughter. So he came and uh, once again, he performed the rituals for uh, Sayyidah Zainab salam. And then he asked them whether they had named her and they said, no, we were not going to name her and precede you and name her before you. And he said, and I will not name her and precede my Lord and name her before my Lord. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Jibra'il alayhi salam and he came to the Holy Prophet and he told him Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala salutes you and he, he orders you to name her or the name that he has chosen for her is Zainab. So Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who asked the Holy Prophet to name her Zainab alayhi salam. And of course, the narrations continue there. They say that Jibra'il alayhi salam also informed the Holy Prophet of the difficulties, the hardships that will befall this young girl at that time, this baby. And the Holy Prophet cried. Fatima Zahra saw him. She asked him. She cried. Imam Ali alayhi salam cried. And we are even told in the narration that Salman heard that Salman al-Farsi al-Muhammadi had heard that uh, Fatima al-Zahra had given birth. So he came to congratulate Imam Ali salam for having a newborn child. Uh, and and he, Imam Ali salam informed him of what was going on. So he came with them and he was part of the household that were basically celebrating while at the same time mourning uh, what would befall this young woman uh, at that time uh, and what she would have to go through throughout her, her life. The point that I wanted to, to perhaps draw into is, and I don't have the answer to this. I will propose an answer, but I leave you to think of it. I think we would say that something like naming the naming of a child is not that big of a deal. It's not that significant of an event. To the point where Fatima al-Zahra salam, with her intelligence and her wisdom and her rank, refuses to name her. And then Imam Ali salam, refuses to name her. And then the Holy Prophet refuses to name her. And her, her name has to come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the question that I wonder about and I ask myself about is why? Why would, you know, excuse the disrespect and how I'm going to ask the question, but so that it's clear. Why would the Holy Prophet disturb Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the naming of a baby? That's a question. Why is it necessary for a child to receive their name from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? 
The short answer to this, I think, and there's two points that I mentioned and I end with, but as I said, this is more something for you to think about, and I leave this with you. The first one is that, obviously, this is to show that this is not someone special, and I'll come, I'll come back to that. This is not someone ordinary. This is someone special. This is someone exceptional. So this goes without saying, and I'll come back to that as my second point. The first one is, when it comes to these special saintly people, they are of different. And one rank clearly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want to leave anything to chance when it comes to them. Nothing is left to randomness. Because these people are going to be performing a mission for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every part of their personality, every part of their being is part of the engineering and the vision and the architecturing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in place in this world down to what their name shall be. And this is a very important point. Okay, so without spending more time, I don't want to take more time on that. That's the first point. The second one is that this could have happened in a way where the Holy Prophet, based on who he is, or Fatima al-Zahra based on who she was, she could receive that name through inspiration, through whatever means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants, and they named the child, and that's the end of it. But it wasn't. It had to be this type of story with a sequence of events with someone like Salman witnessing and reporting it to others later. And this is where you have to add this dimension that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to ensure that we understand the merits and the ranks of these people. Because if it doesn't happen this way, you will never know. If you don't know that her name had to come in this way and where Fatima al-Zahra relies on Imam Ali, who relies on the Holy Prophet, who waits for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to send him the message through Jibra'il alayhi salam, then all of this put together means that for you as a human being later on, when you hear about this and you understand this, you understand that one, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying so and so are special, because sometimes we as human beings want to make someone special, and that's fine, but that's based on our judgment. We will never know truly who is and who isn't. But when Allah says this person is special, that's it. It puts them in a different category. And two, it's for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show the, a glimpse of the merits of these people. Because if this doesn't happen, then you will just say, yeah, the person is, is special. The person is a saint and it stops there. But just how special are they? Is it really down to the point where even their name has to come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that's a very, very exceptional and special person. Okay, so I leave you with these two thoughts. Inshallah, this was uh, useful, beneficial, and uh, we can build on this, inshallah, in, in other lectures. I took a little bit too long. If there are any questions, concerns, comments related to the first or the second part of the lecture, Please don't hesitate. You can use the chat if you're on Zoom or you can write uh, one way or another or you can take the mic or for, I'll start with the people here, but don't hesitate to write uh, online. Uh, and uh,
So questions, comments, concerns about Alam al-Barzakh. I know I dumped a lot of information on you, but inshallah, it's it's useful. Yeah. Uh, I was curious why in prayer, which is supposed to be the connection between us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, why at the end do we uh, send our uh, greetings or our salam to the Holy Prophet? Like what's, what's the idea behind that? What's the, the philosophy, the purpose? So we consider, the question is, why would we send our salutations to the Holy Prophet while we are praying, when the prayer is supposed to be the connection between us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The premise, I think, so that we don't you know, make this into a lecture, we could, but the premise that, if we keep in mind, I think clarifies a lot of this, is that the prayer does not come from just anybody. The manner in which we, play, we pray is called, the technical term is tawqifi. Tawqifi basically means that there's a devotional way, there is a set way of performing the act. So this is especially the case for uh, the obligatory prayers. You know, I can't come up with a way to pray. There's a set way of praying. The prayer is set by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Holy Prophet has to pray that manner too. Okay, if we keep that in mind, then we come to what are the potential reasons why? The short answer to this, I think it's kind of like what we just talked about. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to make sure you understand the intermediary between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And inshallah, we've spent a lot of time on this in these lessons, but we'll talk about it more too. It's going to come back and it's an important question. The intermediary always falls within everything we've said about Tawheed, which is we do not believe that there is any entity, anything that it can exist, that has any existence or any power or any agency, as they call it, any ability to do anything unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows and permits. So once we've determined that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who grants the power, who gives the function, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after this, and this is extremely important for the preservation of the religion, okay? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you want to come to me, you come through this path. If you want to come to me, you come through Muhammad You can't come to me willy-nilly. You can't come to me whichever way you want. So I'm going to make sure that there are Minimums, there are locations of, you know, hooks that you stay. This is your minimum, your safety net, that at least in the obligatory prayer, there's a strict and constant mention. If you go in the Holy Quran, I think it's even clearer. Okay? Like you want to obey Allah, obey the Prophet, it says. Because there is no way to get to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. Some of our scholars, I'll, I'll take that one step further, but it applies for sure to the Holy Prophet. Some of our scholars have said that for the notion of usul al-din, we say that there are five usul al-din, right? So we began with tawheed, adl, nubuwa, imama, and now we are at ma'ad. They flip these, and that makes sense based on what they're saying. We are trying to build them because of the environment we live in, because of the world we live in. We're trying to build our belief system from scratch based on reason. 
Okay? But the truth is, if we were in a different context, some scholars say, and I think there's a huge argument to be made for that, the main asl, the main principle in usul al-deen is the asl of the imam. Why? Is it because we believe that the imam is more important than God? No, of course not. That would be kufr or shirk. Okay? Is it because we believe that the imam is more important than the holy prophet? No, of course not. That would be a form of kufr. So why? Because we can't get to them without going through the imam. Especially if we keep in mind what happened after the holy prophet. Especially if you keep in mind that there are disagreements on who was the holy prophet and how did he react and how did he teach and what did he teach and what did he do? So where's your safety net? When you say Allah is this and not that, what are you relying on? Reason can take you so far, but what about when you start getting into the details? The idea that you have, the notion that you have of Allah or the notion that you have of who the Holy Prophet is or how he reacts, where is it coming from? So then your first principle becomes the Imam. And even, so if you go back to the theory of knowledge, before I believe in something, I have to know it. So how do I know? How do I know about the Holy Prophet? How do I know which version of the Prophet to believe in? How do I know which version of God to believe in? How do I know which version of the afterlife to believe in? And if I do have that safety net, and in every case my answer is, but I have an imam, and the imam told me. Okay, so there's an intermediary, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forces us to go through that mediary to safeguard and protect the religion. You remove that, and then you end up with whatever you end up with for anyone who doesn't have an imam. You end up with all the rest. We feel we have a safety net. No matter what happens, you have the imam. So you can go far, you can stay close, but so long as you stay within what the imam says as your ultimate authority, you're good. You're safe. You, you feel at peace that there is a safety net for you. If you remove that, then you're at the mercy of how history was written. You're at the mercy of you know, the rest. And of course, that applies to the imams. But this is different when you add two and a half centuries after the Holy Prophet where you have imams. It changes things a lot. So to go back to the question, the same reasoning applies to the Holy Prophet. You could say, you know, I'm going to worship God in whatever wish, which way I feel like. And it's going to be good. All Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to, to, to be is good. And so long as I worship him and I'm good, that, that should be enough. No, no, the Holy Prophet is the gate. The Holy Prophet is the condition. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ensures that he repeats this in the Holy Quran and that there are connections even in the prayer, even though the Holy Prophet himself has to perform it. There's a constant reminder that everything you have, you take from the Prophet. If he gives you, you take. If he forbids you, you don't. That's it. If you want to be loved by Allah, obey the Prophet. Follow the Prophet. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeps you know, referring you back to, because you can't get to Allah directly. How do you get to Allah? Subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's impossible. The best you can do is to say, I'm going to the Holy Quran. Great. How do you interpret the Holy Quran? Everybody says, I'm going to the Holy Quran. That's why at the end of the Battle of Safin, they came to Imam Ali alayhi salam in this trickery of, of Muawiyah and his group. And they said, we're going to stop the war and use the Holy Quran as the arbiter and judge. And the first answer of Imam Ali alayhi salam, he told them, you can't use the Quran as a judge. We all believe in the Quran and we're at war. 
And the Quran has all these interpretations. It's open to interpretation. Who are you going to send? Who knows its interpretation? You're going to say it says this when it doesn't. And when initially they raised the Qara'in on, on, the, on their harpoons, on their spears, to say basically, we're Muslims, don't shoot at us. And the people of Imam Ali السلام, those who, a lot of them were hypocrites and a lot of them were khawarij against the Imam to start with, he said, we can't shoot them. He told them, I am the Qur'an. I am the speaking Qur'an. This is a silent Qur'an. I'm telling you what to do. I'm more important to listen to than the Qur'an that you don't understand because you're just reading the words. Right? So this completely changes the way you understand your how you approach your religion. You are expected to use your reasoning. You are expected to delve deeply into religion. But you have to do it con- cautiously because there's always room for slipping and mistakes and misinterpreting. And if you don't have a safety net, you will end up where the others have ended up because there's no guarantees. So we're lucky to have that. And this is to me a constant reminder. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and mention the Holy Prophet, it's because I wanna force you. You wanna come to me, you go through the Prophet. Don't come to me directly. You can't come to me directly. And you wanna go to the Holy Prophet, you can't go directly, go through the Imams they will tell you who the Holy Prophet is and what he said. So I don't know if that answered or not, but inshallah, that was that was good. Um, which step of the Barzakh corresponds to Salat al-Wahsha? Salat al-Wahsha is uh, right away when someone passes away. So it's performed on the first night that the deceased spends alone in their grave. And it is said to be an extremely difficult night uh, extremely lonely night. So you perform that prayer and it uh, is of a tremendous help and ease on the person who is deceased uh, and who has been placed in their grave. That entire chapter of, of a human being's life is, is filled with difficulties. If you go to the manners, the etiquettes related to uh, the imams, for instance, say when you bury someone, you don't just bring them, bring the body and put it in the grave. They say you bring it slowly and you uh, place it near the grave and you move it sometimes even more than once and you bring it close and you leave it there so that the person starts getting acquainted and used to where they're going and what's going to happen because these are very difficult moments. It's not just you know a body that you're carrying. There's a human being and they're fully aware of what's happening and they're seeing a lot more than what we are seeing now. So you know you have to take it gently and you have to help them as much as you can, especially if they are our dear ones. And inshallah, we get people who also help us and remember us when we die. There's a question here that they say that during the time of Imam al-Mahdi, الشريف, there will be a raj'ah of other imams and saintly figures during this Imam al-Mahdi will avenge them. Is there any foundation for this or is this simply folklore? No, it is not simply folklore, and this would require an extensive discussion. discussion. In short, um, the answer I would give for now is simply to say, while some scholars have said that there is no rational foundation that they could find for a rajah, since the person who's asking seems to know what a rajah is, and we'll talk about what it is later on. So they've rejected it, but that's an extremely dangerous thing to do. If you look at the amount of narrations that we have related to Raja and the threats that are 
explicitly stated by the imams again and again in dozens of narrations that say those who do not believe in the raja are not of our followers, then I think it becomes very dangerous for someone to just say there is no raja. If you don't know, just you know, keep your mouth shut and don't say anything because you're going 180 degrees against what the imams are saying. Okay, so it would be, you know, I think a magnificent task for someone to show that there is no raja. Okay, the most that they could be said is my mind cannot comprehend why there would be a raja, which is good for you and your mind. But we have talked about this again and again, and the danger of over-reliance on the mind. Okay, so all of that said, can we just say that it is simply folklore? No. If you are not sure about the raja'ah, it's one of those things that we have, our imams have taught us to say, which is, if you don't understand something, just say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his holy prophet and the imams know best and park it for now. And when we will talk about the raja'ah and we will present the different arguments for it uh, and explain what it is and how it works, then you can decide uh, on, uh, uh, you know, where you, your belief lies with regards to raja'ah. So the short answer is, this is not simply folklore. There are too many narrations to simply neglect the topic of the Raja. That's one. Two, there are too many details and all of this is part of one huge worldview and all of this connects. Okay, so is the Raja for every single person to come back to this life? No, there are conditions and it applies to some people and it doesn't to others. Uh, but how and the details and how do we sort out through all of the uh, different narrations that would require extensive uh, research or at least some a couple of serious lectures if we want to talk about this. Uh, but the majority, I would say, of the books of Aqa'id nowadays do not mention Al-Raj'ah or if they do, they just mention a few narrations. So, you know, we'll decide if we want to get more technical and get into it or not. But it's uh, one more fascinating uh, topic. So Al-Raj'ah is, yes, after... Uh, the appearance of Imam al-Mahdi, it would be the after the, the you know, there's a Sufyani initially with Imam al-Mahdi, then there's a Dajjal after their, uh, you know, coming down of Prophet Isa, السلام, and then everything that happens, and it happens for a very long time. So this is going towards the end of times in this world, and that's when the Raja happens. So the details will, will leave to another time. But most likely, you know, it does not affect us right now in a practical way. It may affect or complement our beliefs. And inshallah, we're going to get to that in due time. Inshallah, this is enough of an answer for now. Okay. I think that's all. Any other questions, concerns, comments? Okay. Okay. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.